So I would like to continue our exploration of the awakened heart this evening. And I would like to hopefully to keep centering that exploration within the context of mindfulness and the Buddha Dharma. And so I would like to begin to talk about compassion, but within a certain context. And the context is really three connective themes. The theme of passion in practice, the theme of compassion in practice, and the theme of dispassion in practice. And sometimes these sound a little contradictory or paradoxical. Let's see. In the teachings on mindfulness in the Pali Canon, the main um, outline of the meditative practices is the Satipatthana Sutta. Satipatthana can be translated quite generally as the foundations of mindfulness. Sati being mindfulness. And the opening paragraph, the Buddha invites us to come, to practice, to see that there's a way that leads from suffering to freedom. And then he begins to describe how to contemplate, because the four Foundations of mindfulness are contemplation, contemplating the body and the body, contemplating the feelings and the feelings, contemplating the mind and the mind, contemplating the dharmas in the dharmas, contemplating phenomena. And we contemplate in and of itself, contemplating the body as we've been doing today for the last 24 hours. We've been contemplating the body in and of itself, being in touch with the body, feeling the body, being aware of it, not from the outside so much as from the inside, from the direct experience, from the felt sense of body, which I'm hoping we can continue, even in the talk. We can contemplate the body as we're, I'm speaking and you're listening. And the Buddha gives some instructions. What's interesting is, even though this is the Satipatthana Sutta, the teachings on mindfulness, the way the Buddha encourages us to be mindful, he uses three words. He encourages us to contemplate body, feeling, um, mind, dharmas. Ardent, mindful, and fully aware. <clears throat> ardent, mindful, and fully aware. And so the practice of mindfulness is not simply being mindful. It's to be ardent, to be mindful, and fully aware. And to be fully aware is to act in full awareness. This is especially emphasized in moving, reaching, lifting, placing, stepping, wearing clothes, eating food, 
going to the bathroom. He describes it actually in detail in a section that's simply called full awareness, to be fully aware um, in all of our actions. He also, in that section, he says to be fully aware when we're speaking and keeping silence, as we're doing right now. And mindfulness, we've been practicing. We've been practicing being present, being centered in the present moment, aware of what's happening as it's happening, moment by moment, being mindful of the reality of body, of breath, of changing phenomena as it sits here. But he begins encouraging us to contemplate with this word ardent. He doesn't say be passive. He doesn't say be lax. He says practice ardent, mindful, and fully aware. And so I looked up the word ardent because I like I like the word, I like the sound of it, but I really wanted to know what, it, what did the Buddha mean when he said be ardent. And here's some of the definitions that I found that I was excited by. The first definition, to be ardent, means characterized by emotional warmth and passion, strong enthusiasm and devotion, burning, on fire. This is not this is not a passive practice that he suggested. This is not a dry practice that the Buddha is encouraging us to engage in. He's suggesting that we practice with our hearts ardently, with warmth with fire, with passion, with enthusiasm, with devotion. All characteristics of the, the heart in mindfulness. And I really see it as the heart, um, the heart aspect of mindfulness. Now we don't practice in a bored way or a dry way or a, an, uh, an unimpassioned way. We practice with our passions. And so this quality that is described of emotional warmth, this is part of what we're attempting to explore, is what does it mean to bring the heart in, to bring the warmth of heart, the love of heart, the friendliness of heart, the kindness of heart, the compassion of heart, the joy, delight, happiness of heart, and the wisdom of heart, the serenity of heart, to bring that to bear in our mindfulness practice. <clears throat> the unification of the heart and mind begins by learning to accept our experience as it is, with a friendliness and a kindness. I don't believe we can really be mindful of experience if we can't accept it. If we're judging it, 
if we're trying to deny it, if we're trying to change it, if we're trying to fix it, we're not being mindful of it. And so one of the themes that we worked with today for the people who were in interviews is the judging mind. Big surprise. It comes as we sit down, as we begin to pay attention to our experience, we begin to have a lot of judgment. So it should be this way, it should be that way. I should be this kind of yogi or this kind of practitioner. I should have this kind of experience. This is not the Buddha's teaching in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. He never says that. He never says you should have a certain kind of experience. What he does say, and he says it so beautifully, and you can I hope you can hear the quality of, of equanimity in his voice. He says, the practitioner knows. The practitioner knows if there's an in-breath or an out-breath. If there's a long breath or a short breath. The practitioner knows if the mind is, um, is um, clear or confused. The practitioner knows if there's an agitated mind. The practitioner knows if there's a calm mind. The practitioner knows if there's a concentrated mind. The practitioner knows if there's an unconcentrated mind. Do you hear the lack of judgment in that? It's the knowing, it's the mindful knowing that's being emphasized by the Buddha. Nowhere, there's not one should in the four foundations of mindfulness. You should be this way, you should be that way, you should have this experience. <coughs> and so, in beginning, in settling in this first day of our retreat, we begin to see that judgment is not helpful. It's not actually the practice of mindfulness. If we be, can begin to relate to our experience in a non-pejorative way, in a non-demeaning way, in a non-attacking way, then we can start to pay attention and let the clarity of awareness begin to arise, be fused or melded, and inseparable from a kindness, from a warmth, from a care, for this very moment, for this experience, whatever this experience might be, even if it's the experience you really don't want. The Buddha had a, a very succinct description of mindfulness that I believe sums up this sense of ardency in terms of the warmth. He says, because we hold ourselves dear, we maintain careful self-regard both day and night. This is, the, this is a very pith instruction of mindfulness. Because we hold ourselves dear, because we value this human life and the possibility of awakening that sits in each seat here, that we maintain careful self-regard a caring self-regard, which is a euphemism for mindfulness. Careful self-regard both day and night, 
as we say these days in the States, that we pay attention with care, with kindness, with warmth. And then the means that we employ are actually the end we seek. That the means are not separate from the end. That the compassion, the, the loving kindness, the care, the, the wisdom of equanimity is not far off, is not at, way at the end of some gold brick road, but is actually in how we're paying attention moment by moment by moment. The sense of passion inherent in ardency. So an enthusiasm, an inspiration for the Dharma, a love of the Dharma. It's a heart quality, it's a devotional quality. What is it that brought you here? What really brought you here? If not a love for the Dharma or a love for freedom or a desire, and it's considered a wholesome desire for awakening, for knowing the truth of who we are, the truth of reality. <clears throat> this is a very personal part of practice and an important personal part of practice to be able to touch our heart's inmost desire as Suzuki Roshi would say he would ask students what's your heart's inmost desire follow it he would say to really look deeply look deeply into what do we really want not just the surface wants but the, the deepest want the deepest yearning the deepest desire and I, would, I believe that that desire brought you here for healing, for wholeness, for freedom, for liberation, whatever you call it, for awakening. And from one of my teachers, Hamid Ali, he said the desire for freedom, liberation, enlightenment, self-realization, inner development, or whatever it is called, is not a response to a call from outside of you. The search is an intimately personal interest in your own situation. It shows itself as a questioning of the disharmony, dukkha we would say, the disharmony one lives in. The stirring must come from you, from your depth. You can use the system to help you, but ultimately it is your life, your quest. The path is you, your mind and your heart. And the quest does not bring about improvement or perfection. It brings about a maturity, a humanity, and a wisdom. And so the passion of ardency I believe, needs to be recognized as already here, already part of your practice. The ardency that brings you to come and spend your precious human life here, sitting, walking, 
paying attention to the mind that jumps around a lot, the pains of the heart, the aches of the body, understanding that there's something in this, there's something in turning towards our direct experience that leads to freedom. There's one more way we can consider passion, and it's summed up in this quote from the Buddha. He says, whatever beings are born or will be born, they will journey on leaving the body. Knowing that everything one has must be abandoned, a skillful one would ardently lead the holy life. Knowing that everything one, everything one has must be abandoned, a skillful one would ardently lead the holy life. This form or flavor of passion is called samvega in the Pali. And it's a sense of urgency. It's a kind of passion that comes with seeing the state that things are in, the state that we're in, the real situation that we're in. When I was a young man, um, I was often inspired by um, a story that, or a quote from the Zen tradition that was used when I was practicing. They would say, practice as if your hair is on fire. <laughs> and, you know, it works, it works pretty good for young men, kind of a young man. Some women, too, like to practice like that, but, but it's got that kind of warrior, you know, macho um, flavor to it. And I, I like that, and I, I found it actually quite inspiring, and I tried to practice like that, and I learned a lot. I learned a lot, and one of the things I learned is, in the long run, it didn't work. <laughs> it was good in the short run, but, but there was a way I would, um, I wasn't being kind to myself. But it's a good thing to know how to do sometimes, because our hair is on fire. Later, much later, I actually found the original quote from, uh, I can't remember the fellow's name, Zhao, Zhao, I can't remember his name, it's about the 7th century. And what he actually said is when the mind itself is, is, is calm and clear, then practice as if to save your head from fire which is a different understanding. It's not just a macho kind of practice. It's actually understanding when to make your strong effort in practice and when not to. Because he's saying, wait till, wait till you're really settled. Wait till you've really collected and composed and then go for it, basically. Not go for it when you're struggling. That's not the time just to push through, actually, is what he's saying. And I found that very interesting and very helpful in the long run. Actually, I learned it in another form. I learned it because for many years I swam in the bay in San Francisco, which is cold water swimming, outdoor swimming. Really great if you live in a city to be able to get in the bay every day, which I did for many years. 
And one day I decided to swim from Alcatraz to the San Francisco, which is not that far, but you have strong currents, and it's something to swim from Alcatraz, which is a prison, an old prison, not, not in use anymore, in the middle of the bay. And, um, and I talked to one of my elders at the club where I swam, who'd swam Alcatraz a number of times, and I said, do you have any advice? And he, he gave me really great advice, and, and I think great advice for a retreat. He said, start slow and finish slow, and in the middle, make your push. And, and I still, that's how I practice when I come on retreat, and that has that flavor of when the mind itself is calm and clear, then practice as if to save your head from fire. That we want to collect ourselves, we want to be skillful, about making that kind of effort, and not just make a muscular macho effort. Although, I don't mean to totally discourage people from that. If you want to try that, go for it. You'll learn a lot. So, samvega, this is the quality of samvega, of the sense of that there's something urgent happening here, that our passion is is rooted in the wisdom of how quickly time passes and how swiftly it's gone. So, when I was first studying compassion and interested in it, I became interested in the word passion and its relationship. Because conventionally, I thought, maybe many people here share this, I thought of passion as a kind of lust or powerful emotional drive. Um, and I didn't think of it, I couldn't, didn't make sense to me the word compassion. I didn't, I didn't understand that. How is Because I understood come meant with. But with passion meant with all this urgency, or all this drive, or all this lust, or what is, how did compassion come from the word passion? And then I, like I want to do, I like words, I looked up the word passion. And the first um, definition is the suffering of pain. Passion is the suffering of pain. And the second definition is the suffering of Christ on the cross. And then it began to make sense to me that originally passion had to do with this noble suffering. The noble suffering of Christ, which was his redemption. And I began to see passion in a different light. If passion had to do with suffering, then compassion meant to be with suffering. Then the word compassion made sense to me. And the word compassion means to suffer with. To suffer with. I'll read you a poem that has really a lot of dharma in it about compassion. It's called Kindness from uh, Naomi Shihab Naya, Palestinian-American writer. 
She says, before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. You must see the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he, too, was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with your sorrow. You must speak it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. There's so much dharma in this poem. She begins with dukkha, with suffering. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. See the future dissolve, what we held in our hand and counted and saved, all this must go, so that we can know the depth of sorrow. And part of Dharma practice, part of what's paradoxical about our practice, is that we turn toward suffering. We turn toward our own suffering, to really see it, to really feel it, to really touch it. No more denial, no more pretending, not trying to get away from it, not trying to fix it, and not think it's wrong or a mistake. Dukkha, suffering, dissatisfaction, disease, that which is difficult to bear, stress, is inherent in life in the human realm. It's simply part of the way things are. And it's a doorway or a portal for us to awaken. And so the Buddha teaches in the first noble truth that there is suffering. In the second noble truth that there's a cause of suffering. And third noble truth that there's freedom from suffering. And then the fourth truth is the path that leads to freedom. Mindfulness is one of the key factors on the path that leads to freedom from suffering. And the paradox is that mindfulness asks us and teaches us how to be present with human suffering, our own. 
And of course, it does not limit it to our own. All we have to do is look around. Just even, even not even trying to, and we walk by somebody and we can see them suffering. We could see the fear, or the confusion, or the heartache, or the uncertainty, or the pain, or the anger, or the contraction. Because it's here for each of us, each person, each man, each woman. And it's not a mistake. It becomes the doorway to the depth of who we are. And it's a gateway to compassion. It opens our heart as we turn to suffering. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you how he, too, was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. And so we turn towards suffering and we open to all of the suffering. We begin to see the size of the cloth, that it's not just our suffering. It's the suffering. It's suffering as part of the experience of life in the human world, the human realm. And then something quite interesting can happen. Which is we begin to find our ground, our center, our being, our essence, in the middle of suffering. We begin to find compassion arising naturally when we open to our suffering. We begin to see that to turn away from the suffering is more suffering. Ajahn Chah said, to run from suffering is to run toward it. To run from suffering is to run toward it. And so compassion is both a quality of the awakened heart and also a central value in Buddhism. That the two wings of practice are wisdom and compassion. And both wings are needed for the bird to fly, for the Dharma to really um, reveal itself in all its fullness. And when, when we start to become familiar with compassion, we'll find it revealing itself in many ways, tender, delicate, soft, perfectly attuned as we open to what's difficult or what's hard or what's painful. Sometimes the compassion can be quite strong, fierce. There's... Um, in the Tibetan cosmology, you'll see paintings of this wrathful deity, um, the wrathful aspect of compassion. 
and it's part of the compassion that is willing and able to see how big the cloth is the compassion that can look at the whole world and see the suffering and hold the suffering of the whole world when we begin to meet dukkha engage dukkha open to dukkha without resistance we can have a whole new relationship to our life our life can become a vehicle for awakening and a vehicle for transformation we don't have to judge our life as being wrong or bad or or that that we've made a mistake anymore one of the great freedoms of the Four Noble Truths. Just that there's suffering and it's going to be here for us. We're not going to get rid of it. We may be free of it, but we're not going to get rid of it. Another way we could say it is pain is inevitable, suffering is optional. You know, the, even the Buddha, who is totally free, had a bad back by the end of his life. He used to get massaged by his attendant because he had a bad back. He still had pain, but he was free even with that pain. Suffering in this way also connects us with the whole world, with each person. We can see beyond the shapes, colors, religions, cultures, nationalities. It levels the whole playing field. Even class, fame, doesn't matter. Everybody suffers. There's dukkha in every human life. If we have the wisdom to see it and to allow our hearts to respond naturally. The word karuna in Pali is, trans, is described, compassion or karuna is described as a quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. Quivering of the heart in the face of suffering. That it's the unguarded heart, the undefended heart, the tender heart. This is from Trungpa Rinpoche talking about the awakened heart. He says, when your heart is awake in this way, you will find, to your surprise, that your heart is empty. You find that you are looking into outer space. What are you? Who are you? Where is your heart? If you really look, you won't find anything tangible and solid. Of course, you might find something very solid if you have a grudge against somebody or if you've fallen possessively in love with somebody. But that is not the awakened heart. If you search for the awakened heart, if you put, if you had put your hand through your rib cage and felt for it, there is nothing there except for tenderness. You feel sore and soft and if you open your eyes to the rest of the world, 
you feel tremendous sadness. This kind of sadness doesn't come from being mistreated. You don't feel sad because someone has insulted you or because you feel impoverished. Rather, this experience of sadness is unconditioned. It occurs because your heart is completely exposed. There is no skin or tissue covering it. It is pure, raw meat. He could be very blunt that way, Chunpa. Even if a little tiny mosquito lands on it, you feel so touched. Your experience is raw, your experience is raw tender, and so personal. The genuine heart of sadness comes from feeling that your non-existent heart is full. This is the paradox of the awakened heart. The love, the kindness, the care, the compassion that comes as we begin to see the transient nature of things, the ephemeral nature, as we practice mindfulness. Where did your day go? Where did it go today? Remember it? Remember this morning? Remember last night? It was all very real, wasn't it? And now it's gone. Like all of our life before this moment. As we start to come into alignment or harmony with the truth of the way things are, the ephemeral, transient, transparent nature of reality, then we begin to discover this full and empty heart. So in some ways we turn towards suffering as both the source of wisdom and compassion. That it is the fuel for our awakening and for the opening and the unveiling of our heart, of our awakened heart. I remember I was working once many years ago as a therapist actually a new therapist. And I was working, I worked for many years with people who were ill and dying. And um, I was working with someone who was manic, was having a, uh, was having a manic attack, and I'd never seen anybody be manic before. And it, it, it caught my attention, I have to say. It's a very strong state, a lot of energy, um, yeah, a lot of energy, a lot of intensity. And what was interesting, I'd been working with him a while and he had bone cancer and he, he was actually very weak. And he walked with two canes. He was a very sweet, sweet man. Um, wasn't spiritual at all. He used to come to see me in his 49 or San Francisco 49 American football gear. And we would talk about illness and death and dying, ultimately. And, but he, at this, he went into this manic phase, and he was doing some pretty crazy things. He was telling me he was driving 100 miles an hour off, uh, over, across the Golden Gate Bridge, and he was, 
he had challenged these motorcycle biker types in, at the gas station to fight because he got mad at them and I'm like, no, no, you shouldn't be doing that. And at some point he got, he got um, angry with me and he stood up and he was raising his cane and I didn't know what to do and I said, oh, David, you're scaring me. And he went, oh, oh, I'm sorry. And it was so interesting because his compassion arose when he really saw my fear. Like he got it, even in this weird state. He immediately was compassionate as soon as he saw my suffering. And if you notice, if we really look, if we really look at other people when they're suffering, if we really see it, our compassion arises naturally. When, when I was training to be a therapist, one of the people who was training me, he said, when you do couples counseling, he said, make sure they see the wounds. I'm like, what? What are you talking He said, well, when they shoot the gun, make sure they see the blood. I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, well, you know, people will, they'll attack each other. The couple will be, you know, as couples do. And will attack each other, but they go like this, boom, boom, boom. And they keep shooting the other person with their barbs or with their whatever they have to say that they know gets them, hurts them. But they won't look at the blood. He said, if you can get them to see the blood, then their compassion will arise. They'll stop doing it. And it's very interesting. If we really look, if we really see the suffering of another, what happens? And so pay attention for yourself. First of all, if you really see your own suffering, if you're really willing to recognize, oh, this is suffering, or I'm suffering. Actually, when you, when you do formal uh, uh, Brahma-Vihara practice, one of the phrases you could use for compassion is, I care about my suffering, or this suffering is important to me. Or I care about the fact that I'm suffering. You, one acknowledges directly our suffering and then watches the effect that has as we acknowledge it over and over again. As Nyanapanika Tara says, in a somewhat archaic language that I like, he says, the world suffers but most people have their eyes and ears closed. They do not see the unbroken stream of tears flowing through life. They do not hear the cry of distress continually pervading the world. Bound by self-centeredness, their hearts turn stiff and narrow. It is compassion that removes the heavy bar, opens the door to freedom, and makes the narrow heart as wide as the world. The last piece to say about compassion is just to mention Avalokiteshvara, Kuan Yin, who sits here. Oh, let's see if we can move the chair a little bit. So here's Kuan Yin. And sometimes you see Kuan Yin or Guan Yin. 
and she has 10,000 hands and arms. Actually, I can't remember if it's 1,000 or 10,000, but it's a lot. Okay? And, um, and the personalness of suffering moves to the universal. That she, her power as an awakened being is to see and hear and touch the suffering of the world. She has a thousand hands and eyes. And, and what you'll see, not in this statue, but in the thousand hand one, you'll see each hand has an eye in it. Each hand has an eye. Actually, one of my friends, who's kind of a Dharma punk, got tattooed of these eyes on his hand, so he could be like Guan Yin. Um, in order to see and touch and hear the suffering of the world. And it's a practice. And some of our friends, we, we share some friends, Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, actually do a mystical Kuan Yin practice, invoking Kuan Yin in order to be able to see and hear and touch the suffering of the world as a practice. And so if you're inspired at some point by compassion and the uh, uh, bodhisattva path, you might investigate a little more deeply the practices of Kuan Yin, the devotional practices, the passionate practice of, of devoting oneself to saving all beings. So, passion compassion, dispassion. And there's a paradox here, the paradox of passion and dispassion is often misunderstood in practice. In the fire sermon, the Buddha, sounding somewhat like an Old Testament prophet, says that all is burning. All is burning, the eye is burning, the ear is burning, the nose is burning, the tongue is burning, the body is burning, the mind is burning. What are they burning with? Burning with the fire of greed, with the fire of aversion, with the fire of confusion. And he gives this teaching, it's a very strong teaching, to see that that every sense door is burning with greed, hatred, delusion. And he encourages us to practice, to pay attention to the grasping and the aversion, the misunderstanding that comes if we're not paying attention to this life. And the reason he does, the reason he says, one who sees this, who sees the fire of greed, aversion, confusion, becomes dispassionate. And he, he describes the path from suffering to freedom here, of letting go of greed, of aversion, of confusion, and becoming dispassionate. 
It's a powerful teaching. It's sequence mindfulness, paying attention to what's happening, paying attention to suffering and the causes of suffering. And then letting go and letting dispassion arise or non-attachment arise and liberation, freedom to arise. And so, dispassion is not dry. It's in the middle of fire that we find our dispassion. We begin to find our non-attachment. Or another way we can see it, say it is we begin to find our objectivity. We begin to see the truth of the way things are. We begin to see what brings happiness and what doesn't. What happens if we're truly mindful with our experience, if we stay present for the whole show and let it come and let it go? And there's a kind of power to this objectivity. It brings the capacity of the heart to respond wisely to all situations. There's a, there's a beautiful example in the Buddha's teachings where a woman comes to the Buddha who's, who's really a little out of her mind with grief. Her young son has died and she's carrying her son and asking somebody to help enliven him so that he will become alive again. And people are actually making fun of her and saying, oh, you're crazy, get away from here. And finally somebody says, well, why don't you go ask the Buddha? He's a wise man, and the Buddha's somewhere near there. And she goes to the Buddha. And the Buddha, in his compassion, in his kindness, doesn't try to dissuade her. He doesn't say, well, what are you talking about? Nobody can make somebody else come alive. He sees her grief, and he sees the need for her to understand the truth of what's happened, not just be told she's wrong or there's something wrong with her. And so he gives her a practice. He says, go to, go to a house in the village and bring me a mustard seed from a house where nobody has died, and then I'll be able to help you. And so she says, she's a wants the help and she starts to go to the different houses in the village and of course she quickly sees that there's no house where nobody has died and pretty quickly she begins to see the universality of human life and human death and she realizes oh this is the way it is that humans die and that this baby has died and she can't bring him back to life. And then she goes back to the Buddha and she becomes a disciple of the Buddha. And it's and I really see this as a as a teaching on compassion coming out of dispassion, objectivity, being able to see the way things are. So if ardent Coming back to the beginning again, we started with ardency. If ardent means burning on fire, how does that relate to dispassion? To non-fire, basically. 
and we can think of it a few ways. Viktor Frankl put it this way, Viktor Frankl who survived the concentration camps. He said, what is to give light must endure burning. What is to give light must endure burning. That in our passion, in our enthusiasm, in our love of the Dharma, in our devotion, we burn ourselves up. A little bit, the appropriate metaphor is like a moth to the flame. There is a passion for the Dharma in which we burn ourselves up in the process. As Suzuki Roshi said, talking about practice, when you do something, you should burn yourself completely, like a good bonfire, leaving no trace behind. And one of the definitions of nirvana is to be extinguished. It means that the fire has gone out. And this extinguishing is highly valued in the teachings. It's considered the goal of the teachings, nirvana. So how do we reconcile the meaning to burn with the extinguishing of passion? For the Buddha, he was passionate in his seeking dispassion. He gave his all. He gave everything. And maybe nothing less will do. That we give it, we give all. And in the process, we burn. We're extinguished. And this dispassion, this non-attachment, this freedom, this liberation arises through that process of both passion and dispassion. Burning to be extinguished. I'll end with a poem from Goethe. He said, tell a wise person or else keep silent because the masses will mock it right away. I praise what is truly alive, what longs to be burned to death. In the calm waters of the love nights, where you were begotten, where you have begotten, a strange feeling comes over you when you see the silent candle burning. Now you are no longer caught in the obsession with darkness, and the desire for higher lovemaking sweeps you upward. Distance does not make you falter. Now arriving in magic, flying, and finally passionate for the light, burning for the light, you are the butterfly and you are gone. And so long as you haven't experienced this, to die and so to grow, you are only a troubled guest on this dark earth. Let's sit together for a moment, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.